the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And before we get into the show, I just want to remind you that we have a theology stream on the OnScript podcast now. So if you keep your eye out in your feed and you see an episode with a little parentheses around it that says and and theology in the parentheses, uh, that's our theology stream. And that's headed up by Amy Brown Hughes, uh, who's been doing that for a few months now. And we have about one episode a month uh, oriented toward theology because we're interested in this podcast um, in the interface between theology and biblical studies. So by housing all of that in one place, we're trying to say something about the relationship between the two, and hopefully you see some of the bridges uh, that we, we uh, make and are exploring between them. Uh, I also want to say thank you to Ed Hackey for faithfully producing this show. He's been doing that for about 30 or 40 episodes now, so thank you so much, Ed, for uh, doing such a good job with that, even when we hand you crappy audio. And also, I want to say thank you to Rebecca Terhune for um, her help with marketing, and Tommy Molman as well, and to lots of lots of other people behind the scenes who, who help out in bringing the show to you. So there's a lot that goes into that. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go over to our website, onscript.study, and click on the Donate or Give tab. I forget which it is now. And uh, you can find out how to do that. Maybe just five dollars a month or two dollars a month, whatever you can, whatever you can pull off. Uh, we'd be really grateful for. So thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the OnScript podcast. My name is Matt Lynch. I'm speaking today with Dan Hawk, who is Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Ashland Theological Seminary. He's the author of several books, including the Berit Olam Joshua Commentary and several other books on Joshua, the Apollos Ruth Commentary, and The Violence of the Biblical God, published by Urbans, which we're discussing today. Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk. Thanks for the invitation. And uh, this, is our, this is our second time... Dis- uh, having this discussion because the first time I managed to to lose the file, so I appreciate you uh, being willing to come on again. My pleasure. Um, th- now there are a couple books uh, published recently on violence in the Old Testament. Um, uh, there's, you, you know, we, I, I had a conversation uh, maybe a little over uh, a year ago with Greg Boyd, and then um, uh, there's John Walton's book um, and a number of other uh, books on violence in the, in the Old Testament. So what, what would you say are some of the distinguishing marks of your book that would help differentiate it in this field of, of books on violence in the Old Testament and Bible more generally? Okay. Well, um, for the most part, uh, the more contemporary books on the topic really look to a, a historical explanation for uh, the violence of the biblical God. So what were the authors thinking? Uh, how, how were the authors influenced uh, by the culture uh, and the context of their times? Um, how, uh, how do we make sense of uh, what they were saying as we translate it into our own time? What do we do? So uh, 
so there's a range there uh, that that um, spans the uh, on the one pole people who who begin with the assumption God just could not have done the horrible things that we see God doing uh, in the Old Testament. So if that's the case, if you begin with that assumption uh, that there are such intolerable pictures, uh, depictions of God uh, in the Old Testament, uh, that they just could not have happened. So the whole thing is rooted in history. Uh, did they happen? Did they not happen? Um, so if they didn't happen, and if that's my assumption going in, uh, then uh, I have to find a way to explain um, why they didn't happen. Uh, because if they didn't happen, then uh, in a sense God is off the hook and I've solved the problem. So uh, various historically oriented studies on this topic uh, look for a way to diffuse the offense. And one of the more common turns and, uh, is, um, is, is basically to say uh, some of the more, well, all of the more uh, egregious uh, depictions of violence on the part of God uh, emanate from flawed thinking, appropriation of cultural ideas, uh, that filtered their way in. Uh, for example, you mentioned Bray Boyd. So his his idea is that uh, God, in many in many cases, uh, commanded uh, the Israelites to do one thing, uh, or Israelite readers to do one thing, but due to their cultural filters, they heard something different. Uh, so there are various ways of, in a sense, diffusing the offense of these violent portraits by saying uh, it. It, it didn't happen, or uh, it was, this is the, the, uh, the creation of a flawed or imperfect human mind. So basically the idea is, um, which is, is still pretty much the prevailing hermeneutical approach in biblical studies, what was the author saying? What was the author thinking? Um, and so saying that the author was... Um, thinking in a way that was um, deficient or um, contrived uh, is, uh, is, is a way, as I said, of, of uh, putting aside uh, the moral problem in a, in a way in an intellectually satisfying fashion. Um, so, uh, all that to say that a lot of uh, it, 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 matter of fact, for the most part, most of the of the treatments that are out there work from this premise: what was the author saying? Uh, uh, what wa what happened? Uh, what were the contexts in which the Bible was written down, recorded, um, composed, so on and so forth? Um, and that is not that has not been satisfying to me for uh, a number of reasons. Um, first of all, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm just inclined uh, not to uh, dismiss uh, aspects of particularly the Old Testament witness uh, simply because they're offensive or intolerable. So I begin with a different premise, and, and others do as well, and that is, um, let's take the, the early church's uh, assessment 
that the God of the Old Testament is the God who is incarnate in Jesus Christ. And let's grapple with that. Um, and to do that, uh, I step out of the entire historical arena, um, the, the historical way of, of um, addressing this issue. Uh, and I'm asking a different kind of question and opening up a different arena. Um, and that is, uh, how does uh, the, the Bible itself tell the story of God's involvement, participation in, direction of violence? So I want to situate the whole discussion of divine violence within the context of the biblical text itself as a narrative work. So I'm not, uh, I'm not asking uh, what did the Bible intend, what did the authors, what did this originally mean, what was the original intent. Uh, I'm, I'm putting that aside and asking a different kind of question. And that is to take this narrative, and I focus specifically on the narrative, uh, to take this narrative testimony as, uh, as a narrative and uh, to inquire about how it shapes our own vision of who God is, who we are, uh, and how God is at work in the world. So, as you, um, in, in thinking about that narrative approach to, to the problem, um, so are you bracketing historical questions then about whether it happened or not? Or, or does your narrative approach then allow us to come back to that question and think about it differently? Well, um, I, I, you know, I, don't, uh, I don't reject and I don't put aside historical concerns. Uh, I think uh, historical criticism for this question uh, has a lot to contribute in terms of clarifying and helping us to understand uh, the story world, as it were, that the narrative presents. Uh, where, I, where I part company, what I do bracket out, is this idea that uh, we can have any, uh, any definitive aspect or access into what uh, an ancient author was thinking, uh, how they were being influenced culturally. I think we've got a good basis for, for thinking about that in some ways. Um, but in other ways, one wonders, for example, how much of our own uh, projections are uh, a part of the construction of what an original author was thinking, particularly when we have such vested interests in, in trying to um, explain really problematic parts of the Bible. Um, so on the other hand, um, so I'm a narrative critic, which means that uh, I like to study stories. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how narratives work, uh, and specifically how narratives shape identity, shape corporate identity. Uh, so the, the difference really here is in uh, viewing how the narrative works. So every, every community every group uh, communicates its most fundamental beliefs, its, uh, speaks its, its truths, its values, its, way, its, its, its very identity 
fundamentally through the medium of narrative. So um, this is also true of, um, of Israel and the early church. So we begin both testaments with narrative. Um, and so that narrative, that narrative tradition, that narrative testimony, uh, I refer to it as, as a spine. It, it's, it's what holds all the other parts of the canon together. And so I take the early church's assessment and, and, and the gift of the canon to us uh, as, a, as a way of saying, this is the narrative that speaks the church's truth, uh, that uh, shapes Christian life, thinking, mission, and identity. Um, and so uh, my interest then is, how does it do that? How does, um, how does the narrative work? What values, what sense of identity, what theological uh, challenges does the narrative set before the church for the purpose of contemplation, reflection, mission, thinking, practice, in whatever context and whatever time the church finds itself? This is the definitive document which the early church says uh, supports, the, uh, supports the, the church's mission, shapes its thinking, gives it its vision, so it's, it's been striking to me in a way that amidst all of the conversations, uh, again, that are, are, are mostly focused around the idea of what did the author think or intend, uh, that there hasn't been a, a, uh, a contribution that just says, let's read the narrative and see how the narrative tells the story. And let's locate our discussion uh, as Christians uh, around what the text is saying, what the narrative is saying, how it's the kinds of questions it's setting before us, rather than arguing about what ancient authors, biblical authors intended or what they, they were trying to say or not say. So is it, is it fair to say then that your, your approach, um, just, just to go back to that historical question then, um, you're you're not saying that the question of whether, for instance, the genocide in Joshua happened or not. Um, now, of course, that presupposes a certain reading of Joshua, but but you're you're asking the question um, as particularly Christians um, take up this scripture. What is the work that this scripture is trying to do on us, and in what ways is it trying to form us? And within that context, then let's think about the question of the presentation of God as violent or not in the Bible. Right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, specifically and intentionally bracketing out um, questions of intention and historicity. Uh, I'm, I'm not asking the question, did this really happen? I am asking the question, as you said, how does it work to, to shape Christian vision and practice? Yeah, and, it, and it's been interesting in... Um, in, in looking at how people who are are debating and thinking about the um, problem of violence in the Bible have appealed to to early church fathers like Origen, so he's been one that's been kind of championed on on all sides. Um, and I, I noticed, and I'm probably going to get some details wrong here, so um, apologies to Boyd in advance. But I, I remember in reading his book that um, he 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 
he appeals to to Origen's uh, sense that when we when we read a book like Joshua, if it doesn't give us an um, an ethic befitting God, then we should read it allegorically. Um, now, one of the things that that I recall is, is that Origen actually assumed that the event the events in Joshua happened. So, so he 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 didn't he actually wasn't too exercised about that. Um, but that's precisely where a lot of the modern anxieties lie. Uh, but he was concerned with what, how does this, how is this meant to shape Christian behavior? And he says, this isn't uh, a warrant for us to then go out and wage wars of genocide on our enemies. It's meant to be a way of waging war against the passions inside us and so on. So, so he's concerned with, with that sort of question of the, the shaping of, of, of Christian behavior and, and the church's ethic and so on. That seems to be a little bit more of where your, your concern lies, even though you're not taking an origin-esque allegorical <laughs> approach. <laughs> I think that's really, that's really insightful, and, and, and you're right. It's interesting. So, so origin, as well as it, it, it appears, uh, most of the early Christian interpreters were, again, insistent that uh, the God of the Old Testament, what we read of the God of the Old Testament, is is uh, is in a in a sense, uh, it's the same God as we see reflected in in Jesus Christ. So Origen's concern, as I understand him, again as as you've noted, is the problem is that reading literally, reading the the literal sense of some of these Old Testament narratives is theologically incompatible with uh, how the church wanted to instruct or teach or practice. So uh, it was on that case, it was on, on that, in that direction that um, Origen and others moved to a non, to, to the non-literal census. That's, um, but I think you're quite right. Uh, there's something uh, about this uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, statement, uh, it just couldn't have happened, that that seems to me a fairly modern uh, turn. Uh, and uh, I think you're right. It, it, it reflects something about our society, uh, perhaps uh, uh, about Christian mission in this society, in a world saturated with violence, dealing with, with Christendom's own legacies of violence that um, that is probably driving that question to find some way to say no it just it that just couldn't have happened yeah and and i get that concern um so i i'm not minimizing that at all um in fact i i feel the the weight of that uh historical question but let's let's get to your narrative approach and what it yields um so what what are some of them as you look at this spine of scripture that this narrative what what do you see then with regard to god's activity and involvement in history that informs our understanding of God's use of violence? Well, I think, uh, I, think I, I begin, uh, and, and here I'm drawing on, on uh, scholars like uh, Walter Brueggemann and particularly Terence Fretheim, who uh, I think have read uh, the narrative literature and the Bible as a whole with an appreciation of uh, uh, God's relationality 
that God is, by God's nature, a relational being. And God God could do, God could redeem, restore the world all by God's self. But God chooses uh, to uh, enlist human partners, human friends, to enter in relationship with, with human beings uh, in order to uh, in order to take out to carry forward this work and in the process uh, if assuming that 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 relationship has has any uh, real substance and meaning at all then that means that that both partners in this relationship are working together uh, and that means that that uh, God is is as I read um, the Bible God is giving human beings, a significant role in uh, carrying out God's uh, restorative work in the world. Um, so basically, uh, so I, that relationality, I think, is an important beginning. Um, Fredheim talks about God choosing to limit uh, God's self um, in order to uh, work in collaboration with human partners. Uh, but as I read the narrative, um, this, uh, this relationship, which develops, uh, relationships are not static. They have twists and turns and develop this relationship, um, ends up pulling God in, uh, over the course of time more deeply, uh, into the human systems of violence and power that configure uh, this this humanly made world uh, to the extent where finally uh, God finds God's self uh, identifying with the, and working within the the very monarchical system the system of kings that that God opposes in Egypt uh, so uh, it's uh, it, it's a uh, <laughs> I could kind of put it simply, in, in a sense, God stepped into the world to, to help human beings clean the world up, and he got human stuff all over him. I mean, it's, 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 uh, um, so it's, it's, it's a, as I read it, uh, the, 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 particularly the Old Testament is, is uh, presenting a view of God uh, that, first of all, elevates human beings considerably. I mean, that's, that's the picture of human beings in the garden. God, God, wants us human beings to to carry out God's work in the world and 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 that was true in the garden it's it's true in in the restoration of the world so God values who we bring and is willing to adjust what God is going to do based on uh, our foibles our mistakes our input Uh, and so we see in in the Old Testament a God who is continually working and adaptive and God uh, I I guess one of the the other big questions that that comes alongside of this whole thing is, is, as I've read it, is what does it cost God, in a sense, to be meaningfully involved with human beings uh, in restoring the world? Um, and, and it costs God quite a bit. God, God, has to, uh, God has to adjust in some significant ways uh, so what, what God is of- doing. So, what are some of the texts that you would go to to highlight the ways that it cost God, that this involvement cost God? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So, this this happens in increments in a way. So, for example, 
uh, God begins relationship with, with Abram and Sarai. Uh, and this means that, that God chooses a family, uh, chooses to identify with a family. And by implication, that means that God takes sides. So uh, I, I think it's pretty clear biblically uh, that that violence is an, is is an anti-creational. It's a damaging practice. It runs counter to God's purposes for creation. Uh, but in order in order to in a sense to to identify with Abraham with with Abram, um, God has to to take Abram's side uh, to defend Abram, even. Uh, and that's that's part of the blessing, right? I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. Uh, so God has to engage in some ways uh, that, in a sense, run counter to uh, to the, the best uh, impulses of, restor- of restoring creation. When God identifies fully at Sinai with Israel, uh, the implication of God identifying with a nation means, uh, at least as I read uh, the Old Testament narrative, means that God also then, uh, as the uh, as the suzerain, as as the emperor, uh, also takes on the responsibility to defend Israel from its enemies. Uh, so then God is involved in, in advancing Israel's interests, and that in a violent world, that, that entails the exertion of violence and many so, other so you, instances. Yeah, so you're, you're framing um, God's acts of violence as a, a necessary result of his desire to be in relationship with a particular people. Is that fair? Yeah, it, it's, it's inevitable. Yeah, I would use uh, uh, right. It's it's inevitable. So I and I think one of the ways of of illustrating that is uh, God's decision to work with the Davidic monarchy. God is going to identify with kings, uh, even though it's pretty clear God at the beginning has some sense of where this is all going to end up. <laughs> yeah, he's not a big fan of, right. of Israel choosing a king. Um, yeah, that's an interesting story that he. He kind of folds that into his divine purposes, even though he's not dead set against it, but he's, he, 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 he wants people to read the fine print and he warns them against all the damage that it's going to cause them. So, um, but then he not only concedes, but he, he enters into covenant then with Kings, which is, which is that move toward that relationship, uh, despite its cost. Um, now, no, one of the things I get from reading the Old Testament is is this idea that his relationship with humanity and then Israel causes God some kind of grief or pain. You know, like in the precursor to the flood, it says that he was pained to his heart because of the violence that filled the world. And, you know, throughout the book of Hosea, he's got major marriage problems. And then in Jeremiah, he's... Uh, you can't. He's. You can't tell whether it's Jeremiah or God crying and and grieving along the way. Um, but but one of the things that I was wondering about is that there does seem to be a reticence in the Old Testament, at least at a semantic level, to attribute Hamas to God, the Hebrew term that's often rendered violent, morally problematic violence. 
Um, now, Job does, I think, and I'm, I'm not sure um, uh, if there are other occasions, but it's 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 quite rare. Um, so, is there not still a recognition on the part of biblical authors that even though God engages in wars and so on, that the way he does so is wholly just in contrast to the morally problematic ways that humans engage in violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know that, uh, and here I'm staying focused uh, in the narrative because the prophet's the prophets go in a compl- uh, uh, really a, 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 a much more direct and, in a sense, uh, intense uh, expression. Uh, the narrative tradition, at least as I read it, particularly through uh, Genesis through through Second Kings, um, I don't know. I, I think there is a certain reticence. Um, but where I see your question going, if I could take it in a different direction, is... Um, that uh, uh, God at, at, at Sinai, particularly after um, the, the golden calf incident, where there is just a massive um, uh, a demonstration of violence that, by the way, is precipitated by Moses, and, and without reference to God telling him to do that, by the way. So there's a there's an interesting dynamic going on in that, but there's he's he's taking initiative. Yeah, yeah, and he's mad. Uh, whereas uh, God has gotten angry, and Moses has kind of talked him down, <laughs> and uh, and Moses is more important anyway. But uh, where I see this going, and where the reticence is, is in this notion that that God describes uh, the divine character as slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So anger in a sense, is is the operative, in a sense, emotion, affective kind of uh, term that's, that's associated with divine violence. But um, the, the narrative is pretty, uh, I think, is, 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 is pretty nuanced in um, separating divine anger from divine violence. Yeah, I, I found that very interesting. Your book that, I, and one of the uh, significant contributions of your book, I thought, was teasing out that 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 very point that God's acts of violence, um, you know, and and that term violence itself is a kind of readerly construction of of what's happening. Um, but we so so the the acts that we consider violent um, are not are rarely, if at all, done out of the emotion of anger. So this angry, violent God, which is, those two are often put together in ways people talk about the God of the Old Testament, that needs to be separated. So help us think about why, what's the function of anger, and how does it or not relate to violence? Great question. Um, So, God is uh, sometimes angry, but not always violent. So uh, the first time that that uh, anger, that God is said to be angry, uh, he's angry at, at Moses uh, uh, and for for Moses' repeated attempts to try to back out of what God is asking him to do in going to Egypt and 
and uh, and and delivering the people. Um, so uh, God uh, God can be violent, but is not often, in fact, rarely said to be so uh, to be angry. So the flood. So the first the first affective. Uh, term that's that's applied to or associated with divine violence is grief uh, sorrow so um, it's it's interesting to me how little when you look at the narrative uh, how few times God is really said to be angry and uh, uh, spanning the whole lexicon of of Hebrew terms for anger uh, and m- for the most part, with very few exceptions, those instances of anger uh, are, are in response to blatant covenant violations. In other words, uh, a, a blatant and intentional or repeated uh, violation of the reciprocal choosing that defines the relationship. So God chooses Israel exclusively. Israel is, is to choose God exclusively. Um, and those few times in which uh, God is angry are, are uh, an expression or response on the part of God uh, to that covenant violation, which, which says to me, and it suggests to me at least, that, that anger is, is um, a way of talking in the negative uh, about the intensity of God's commitment to Israel and to the relationship. Uh, God is is intensely committed in in a way that only the language of emotion can capture. So God is uh, we're familiar with that in the positive. That's uh, Chesed or or God's uh, devotion, God's passionate devotion to Israel. But um, every positive is defined by negatives. So, in part, so anger also expresses that that intensity of that commitment in the negative. Yeah. So, so you have then um, anger as the flip side of the intensity of the of the relationship, but and you also um, have anger as the, the sort of protective barrier around the relationship too. It seems in certain instances where the family that God is bound Himself to comes under threat. Right, so either internally, you know, one one Israelite against another, and through acts of injustice or threats against the nation as a whole, where God's anger is is this sort of engine driving his concern for the family. Yeah, it, interestingly enough, though, in the narrative, uh, God is never said to be angry at anyone outside of of Israel. So divine anger is not is not associated with God's actions toward anyone but Israel, which again seems to me to point to uh, a strong association w- with covenant. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I remember in an article called God's Loyal Opposition, um, Richard Jarrett Middleton talked about this idea that that God also seems quite fond of revealing when he's becoming angry, which 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 opens up a window of opportunity for the prophet to intercede to appeal to God's mercy. So, I mean, if you tell someone I'm becoming very angry <laughs> with you, you're trying to to help them take actions then to 
to mitigate that in some way. So I, so I, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, I wonder if we could uh, shift gears. I have, a, I have a couple of speed round questions for you. And, and the idea here is to, um, you've, you've got just a couple seconds, maybe five seconds to answer these. Um, so they, they have to be short. So, all right, first question, um, beer or wine? Wine. Or grape juice. Okay. Uh, red wine. So I, I've, <laughs> red wine. Okay. I have no clue about different types of wines. I'm, I'm more of a beer person, but so what's your favorite though? Uh, would be a Pinot Noir. Okay. Good Pinot. Um, yeah. all right. If, um, if, if it's, if you're alone and you drop your sandwich on the floor, do you still eat it? <laughs> Probably not. It depends okay. on what kind of sandwich. If it's peanut butter, definitely not. Right. Yeah. Uh, if it's an egg salad sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. yeah messy. Um, Okay. Um, if you could add one book to the biblical canon, what would it be? Ooh. Act, uh, uh, so uh, am I allowed the Apocrypha? Are you talking about the Protestant well, canon? So, uh, sure. You could add one from the, um, uh, the Apocrypha to the Protestant canon. That's fine. I think Tobit is, is a lot of fun. That would, that would be an interesting one to, uh, to have people, Christians, uh, talking about. Um, why is that? Uh, I just I think it's because it's so strange, uh, and you you've got things on the eye and all that, right? Yeah, and and it's you've got these you've got uh, a, a universe, a world, a kind of a vision that's kind of in between the Old Testament and the New Testament with these demonic beings, uh, really, uh, uh, um, you know, causing all kinds of of. Uh, mishaps in the world yeah it would be it would be a little it would be helpful to have a little bit of a forewarning that they're coming yeah. you know when you get to the new testament so that might help yeah um, but you've now that you put one into the canon you have to take one out Ooh, <laughs> it just doesn't feel <laughs> obadiah. right obadiah obadiah okay yeah. um not, not a big fan huh um okay what so what's on your recently played list on on spotify or whatever you listen to Ooh. Uh, well, uh, recently, um, I've been jamming to John Cougar Mellencamp um, and Jackson Brown. Well, so that's good stuff. Old, old school. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And how about, how about on Netflix? Netflix, uh, my wife and I just uh, just finished the entire run of Longmire and uh, uh, enjoyed that and uh, uh, also liked the, the Last Kingdom. All right. And... Um... Excluding your current job, what's your dream job? Wow. You have um, to pick a different career. Um, well, uh, uh, before I got uh, uh, captured by the Jesus movement, I was an actor. So I oh, think, you were? Yeah, I think uh, a, a job in a regional repertory theater as part of the company would be wonderful. I, oh, I this miss is, this that. Is, this is interesting. You know, it's funny because when I saw you give your paper at SBL, I thought, this guy, you know, he's not, he's not standing behind the podium reading from a paper. He's walking around and talking to us. So now, now I have a better sense of where this, this comes from. So what, what kind of acting did you do? Um, uh, lots of different kinds, but mainly uh, I, I was a character actor. So not the main, but just uh, 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 characters who are, who give a little color and flavor uh hmm. to to the play were you ever the villain uh no 
Uh, I always wanted to play one. I thought it'd be fun. Uh, the closest I got was uh, actually playing Renfield, who was uh, the the demented assistant of Dracula in in a production of Dracula. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Well, I hope I hope some opportunities open up for you. Um, what, what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last fifty years? The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. Ooh, a non a non narrative book. A non narrative book. But really, uh, I think significant in so many ways. Uh, it it uh, it is. I mean, I. I it's, it's Although a book he does that, deal with Moses, so it's, he it's does not totally deal with Moses. Yeah, yeah. So it just uh, it was a game changer. I think in mm. a lot of ways. I think you're not the first person to say that. Um, <laughs> Probably now, what's, not. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Well, it it may it may be uh, on its way out, but this this idea that the best exegesis is done from a from an objective distance, uh, that you you put all of your presuppositions aside so that you can uh, again discern what the the author was originally intending to say. Um, I. I I think exegesis is is more of an art uh, than than a science, uh, and I think we uh, we hear better when we collapse the interpretive distance uh, between the reader and the text, and and just step into it. Mm. Hmm. Can you um, who who are some of the mentors that have shaped the way you think as a, a biblical scholar? As a biblical scholar. Um, well, I I, uh, I was very directly shaped um, by my seminary uh, professor John Oswalt in particular ways, uh, particularly with the the sense of the theological, uh, the importance of the theological dimension of of exegesis. Uh, I did my actually I did my uh, doctoral dissertation under David Gunn, who was a wonderful mentor in helping me to think. And learn uh, uh, at at a time when when this was a, a, about a literary method and narrative reading and all that encompasses. Uh, he really put a lot of of those ideas together for me. Um, and then I think just just in terms of reading um, and and interaction again, uh, Walter Brueggemann, Terence Fredheim, uh, been really important. As, as I would say, some of my interaction with uh, non-Western scholars, uh, particularly indigenous, North American indigenous scholars who really read differently, don't have this issue of, well, did it really happen or what was happening, but, but just uh, see the Bible and, and understand the Bible in, in ways that I have found really challenging and hmm. edifying. Yeah. Do you have Do you have any book recommendations there on on uh, indigenous uh, approaches to the Bible? Yeah. Well, uh, particularly Randy Woodley's book. Um, I think it's uh, Shalom in the Care of Create the Community of Creation. I think it's a wonderful book. Uh, uh, is just, he out of uh, and Oregon in somewhere? Or? Yes, he's at. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, he's at Portland Seminary, I think. Or, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. And and uh, uh, I, here's a. Uh, so uh, I, uh, a book called uh, Evangelical Postcolonial uh, Conversations 
that I co-edited along with uh, Kaya Gera-Smith and uh, Jaya Chitra Lalitha. That's IVP. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. Sound, sound like good recommendations. Um, and, and what are you reading these days? Um, actually, I see your book on your desk. Are you, are you, you just keep going back through it, or um, <laughs> do you read other stuff too? Yeah, I, uh, actually, um, I, I've been diving back uh, into uh, the work of Anthony D. Smith, uh, who has shaped me in some other directions. Smith is one of the foremost uh, uh, scholars on the topic of modern nationalism. So I, uh, one strain of my scholarship has to do with uh, reading uh, biblical narratives uh, in conversation with uh, uh, modern nationalist narratives, national mythologies. So I, I've actually recently gone back to revisit him and think about how uh, what I what I can do with that. You know, yeah, I can't imagine what drove you back there, but uh, that's that's. It sounds like a, an interesting subject. Um, and then w- what's one really unpopular or controversial view uh, in biblical studies th- that you hold? Uh, unpopular or controversial? Um, uh, that's, boy, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I, it, it's interesting. This this book already has, has um, some folks have compared me to a process theologian on one end and associated me with with a uh, uh, fundamentalist on the other so uh, I, I must be I must be hitting something uh, I, I probably would I, I it probably is my focus on bracketing out um, the the role of the author my skepticism about uh, uh, dis, uh, authorial and whether we can adequately discern authorial attention enough to be able to use it as a basis of theological reflection. I really think theological reflection uh, should be based on the text itself. Let's start there. Uh, Particularly uh, Christians who are not uh, well-trained, it's a great way to, I mean, you don't have to be a, uh, in other words, you don't have to be a, a, a trained exegete or a historian to be able to appreciate and to grapple with the narrative, uh, so uh, there's a. I, think, I, I wonder sometimes if there's if there's a bit of an elitism still in in the academy uh, that that wants uh, to say. No, well, I, think, you know, I think that's been rooted out. Yeah. No, I, I okay. I well, so. maybe in the UK, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. But yeah, yeah it's, I think it's we're a the ones who really know what the Bible's saying, and you know, you have to be trained in order to to really mix it up with us. Yeah, I th- um, I wonder too. In addition to elitism, if there's also not an anxiety behind uh, a concern over authorial intent, and specifically, you know, if if you lose that sort of anchoring in the author, what is it that roots meaning? I think is probably part of the concern. So, what what would you say to someone who expresses that that kind of anxiety? Well, um, first of all, I would say that that the historical hermeneutic is culturally specific. Um, you know, for, for Western culture, since the rise of the historical consciousness in the 18th and 19th century, historical knowing has been a prime vehicle for the truth, or for, for, knowing, for, for knowing what is true. 
uh, you hear it in so many ways. So I, I would simply uh, suggest, uh, first of all, that maybe it's useful to, to recognize um, uh, what we bring, uh, what influences us culturally to, uh, about the way we interpret the Bible, and uh, to investigate uh, other interesting ways of interpreting the Bible that may, that may actually uh, also be edifying and, and uh, faith-building. So I'm, I, I am a narrative critic, but I, 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 I employ a, a post-structuralist hermeneutic, which means that um, I'm, I'm interested in different ways of thinking about how the Bible uh, impacts, shapes uh, Christian vision. Uh, it's interesting. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to have this conversation with some, um, with some prisoners hmm. <laughs> in, a, in a correctional yeah. Uh, facility who uh, who do. are worried because of a contradictions in the Bible, and b the prospect that maybe some things in the Bible didn't happen exactly the way the Bible says they happened, and 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 there that whole premise, the whole cause of anxiety is because the Bible uh, they've been taught uh, as many of us have that the that that we need to think of the Bible in certain ways. So if we can think about it in different ways uh, and still uh, not be so worried about proving things, which is important in our culture, but um, realizing that, that this is the, the Bible is God's gift to the church. It is the church. It's also the church's book. Uh, it doesn't have any autonomy other than uh, as it speaks to the church, but um, this, this is a book that, that builds us up, shapes our faith, helps us to clarify our vision, and uh, there are multiple ways of discerning how that works. So, um, I, I want to just, before we, we round out the, our discussion, I, I want to just talk about some of the, the shifts from the Old to New Testament, if we want to call them shifts. Um, and and you, you talk about kind of a major shift in the narrative from the old to the new, um, and, and and you you say admittedly that you're simplifying a bit here, uh, but you write in your conclusion that quote the Old Testament presents God at work primarily at the center of society, while the New Testament presents God at work primarily in the margins. So explain that shift and how it impacts our thinking about divine violence. Okay. Yeah, boy, thanks for that that question as well. Uh, so what I mean by God working from the inside is uh, a way, uh, maybe not as precise as it could be, but a way of characterizing how God gets pulled into the system. So God, in identifying with Israel uh, and uh, uh, calling Israel to 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 collaborate in as a partner in redemptive uh, God's redemptive work, uh, God for the most part uh, does that through the systems of power uh, in uh, in Israel. Uh, what this means, in a way, um, is that uh, God is open in doing so to uh, to being horribly <laughs> misinterpreted in a way. Um, 
So we do have this counter narrative, I think, all the way through, uh, which uh, presses up against uh, some of these uh, these uh, center uh, uh, emanating views of God and says, "But this it, this isn't really who God is. This isn't really uh, what God wants." Um, so. I think for me, uh, what happens is when the whole project collapses, uh, and I think, again, Kings is pretty clear, it collapses because of the Kings uh, in, in the main, uh, that when God sets up a new kind of, of kingdom um, outside the system, in a sense, so God is no longer working within the monarchical system within Israel, but God chooses to step to the margins of Israel. Um, that frees God in a way to not only to identify uh, with, with uh, those who are uh, the victims uh, of oppressive power, but it frees God to say, uh, this really is who I am. Uh, and so in a sense, so I, I, I see a lot of that counter narrative which is is understated in the Old Testament, now being uh, fulfilled, filled out in in the person and work of Jesus, um, and and here in a sense, in a certain way, I I, I do uh, find a lot of, of resonance with Boyd saying it's it's at the cross where we see the fullest revelation of who God is. Yeah. So so then um, so it's not as if uh, how, let me know if I'm mis. Representing, but so it's not as if there's a kind of radical shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament in terms of um, God's core desire in terms of how He likes to work, but um, there is a a shift in terms of the political structures of power through which He um, works out His purposes in the world. Is that? Yeah, I think that's that's fair to say, and 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 the reason this is. Uh, been important for me to line out is because uh, in the end this the 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 narrative as a whole uh, provides multiple pictures uh, for how to be at work with God in the world and it comes down to your ecclesiology in a way if you, if you if you believe that the kingdom of God is called ultimately to to completely stand completely outside the system as a radical witness. Uh, to have no part within the system itself, then then there's some there's some places where you can really resonate, uh, where you can find that happening. Uh, but there, as we know, there are large uh, aspects of the church uh, who do not believe that God has abandoned the systems of power, that God is somehow at work and calls Christians uh, to be part of that apparatus to work redemptively in it. So. Um, so, so the the canon really, I think, as a whole, and the narrative as a whole, represents uh, through God's story the complexity of decisions uh, that Christians uh, uh, are are having to make in the world today. In in terms of how are we called to be the people of God and and to cooperate with what God is doing in the world today. Well, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to speak about your book, The Violence of the Biblical God, and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing um, how this, uh, this work continues. Thanks so much. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.